Welcome back to the Thrive Subscribe Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Deniger. Uh, a lot has happened in the last week with our pharmacy practice. Uh, late last week, as we were getting ready to close the pharmacy, we uh, were informed that there was going to be protests in our area with the potential for looting and rioting uh, in our area, and we had to take some precautions to protect both our pharmacy, our property, and our employees. Uh, that involved putting some boards up on our windows and uh, uh, taking some other measures to protect both uh, the, the, the materials inside the pharmacy uh, and the records and such. Uh, fortunately, tensions have eased since then, and thankfully, we were not directly impacted. The protests in our area were largely peaceful. There was some uh, some rioting and a little bit of uh, you know graffiti and such uh, in areas of our of our town, but for the most part, we were very fortunate. And I guess I cannot say the same thing has been true all over the country. Um, all of this was happening at the same time that we were getting ready to reopen our doors to our pharmacy for the first time since late March. Uh, some of the preparations we made, we uh, installed some plexiglass screens at our registers. Uh, we actually put in a stoplight outside of our door, which we can control red and green, uh, indicating uh, when we turn it green that one person can enter the pharmacy lobby uh, safely, and then we can turn it back to red until that lobby is then cleared, and we can therefore control how many people are in the pharmacy at any given time. Uh, this week, we allowed our first customers back in to the pharmacy since late March. On top of all this going on, we also went live as a COVID-19 testing site uh, here in our pharmacy this week. Uh, this entailed some additional training for our staff. Uh, when I graduated pharmacy school back in the early 1990s, one of my mentors told me that now that I was graduating from the university, I needed to start my education. He was referring to, of course, being a lifelong learner, and he was so correct. Most every week, I find myself completing new educational materials, doing continuing education uh, on topics, some of them related to programs that we will be involved in, are involved in, or just to keep up with what's happening on a daily basis. Uh, I've spent a large amount of time over the last several months uh, learning information about the pandemic, uh, learning uh, about testing, for example, uh, and of course other things that have gone on in that uh, same time as well. So it's been a great example of, of the need for continuing learning uh, and lifelong learning uh, in pharmacy. So in that vein, uh, today our own Suzanne Vini will be taking the reins of the Thrives uh, on Thursday podcast, and she will be talking with our regular host Randy McDonough about his process for keeping up to date in this fast-paced healthcare world. Suzanne, take it away. Well, good morning, everyone. In a little twist of events, um, I'm here today. This is Suzanne Feeney, and I lead the business development team at CE Impact and also am a co-founder with Randy of Thrive Subscribe. And we're here today to talk about staying up to date in clinical um, topics and guidelines within community practice and why that's so important. So today, I'm actually going to uh, change shift tables a little bit and, and um, guide Randy through a couple of uh, interview questions. So thanks so much for joining us today on your podcast, Randy. Thanks, Suzanne. I appreciate being on it. Yeah. So I know, you know, every time Randy and I talk, I always say, Randy, what are the three things? And so for most of us who are out there practicing in community pharmacy, 
we know that it's a lot more than just looking and saying, okay, these pills in this bottle match what's in this bottle and what's on the label matches what the doctor wrote. But there's three really important points um, as we're checking each prescription that goes through the pharmacy and we're talking with each patient. We're assessing for safety, for efficacy, and for therapeutic outcomes. Um, and Brandy, can you, can you talk a little bit about that and why it's so important um, and, and how you make that happen in a community-based practice? Yeah, yeah, Suzanne, I appreciate uh, that question because those are the three things. And actually, a fourth one has been added talking to uh, practitioners mm -hmm. out there. It's therapeutic outcomes with safe and effective medications that are affordable. So the affordability mm -hmm. as well, too, is going to be important. But, you know, as I um, progressed within my own practice within community pharmacy, I realized when we were starting to implement services, that initially I always thought it was outside of the dispensing only. And that, mm -hmm. you know, I'd spend uh, a good amount of my time interviewing a patient, then working up that patient, identifying the medication related problems, then making uh, recommendations to a prescriber to resolve those medication related problems. And I thought that's what really my main role within community based pharmacy and providing clinical services was. Mm -hmm. Until um, I got challenged by one of my former residents who said, we're missing a lot of opportunity within workflow um, mm -hmm. by not actually utilizing the resources available to us, including the patient record, um, our, our access to the patient, and to really identify any medication-related problems on the run. Mm -hmm. And as I listened to her explain that, she was absolutely right. So when I became co-owner of Towncrest Pharmacy, that was one of my main focuses was how do we make this work within workflow? So I was teaching the pharmacist, and now I teach the students, the residents, that really for you to identify and resolve medication-related problems, you have to think internally in your mind, well, what's my role? What am I trying to do? Well, what you're trying to do mm -hmm. is make sure the patient is achieving a therapeutic outcome, the medications are safe, um, and the medications are effective. And then, as I said, now also if the patient can't afford it, what's, what kind of uh, things do I need to do for interventions to make sure the patient can afford the medications as well, too? So by doing that within workflow, um, real time, you're able to identify and resolve medication-related problems, help that patient um, optimize their medications, and make lots of clinical interventions on the run. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I feel pretty passionately about that too, Randy. I think there's, there's definitely the case for meeting with patients by appointment, but there's so much that we can do right there in workflow and, and looking at each prescription that's dispensed. So I think it's really important to make every encounter count through safety, efficacy, therapeutic outcome, affordability. I really like that. Um, so talk to us a little bit about how do you stay up to date? Because if you're the community pharmacist out there, you know, as you know, you're the generalist. You need to know a lot about everything. Um, and, and that can be hard to do when, you know, you're busy working in a pharmacy, seeing patients, and in some cases, some of our listeners, you know, also ownership. So how do you really make sure that you're staying up to date with guidelines and current practice recommendations? Yeah, I think keeping up to date is a challenge, not just for community-based pharmacists, but for all healthcare providers, but in particular mm -hmm. with community-based pharmacists, because they are so busy um, managing a lot of different processes within the pharmacy, keeping up to date is going to be very important because you're going to have to think very quickly on your feet and, and make good clinical uh, recommendations based upon the knowledge that you have. So you got to keep that knowledge um, updated and current. So there's a lot of ways that I've try to uh, train my students and, and pharmacists and for myself uh, how to keep up to date with uh, drug information and guidelines and, and just the knowledge that we need to have. 
One is I subscribe to quite a few different RS, RSS feeds, uh, such as mm -hmm. New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, the British Medical Journal, Lancet, Annals of uh, Pharmacotherapy. Those are just some of the few that I get regular feeds as far as when new information comes out that I can um, quickly peruse the information and make a decision on if this is going to be something that's affecting my practice and my patients that I should know about. So that's one thing that I do. Another thing I did early on is, you know, I want to make sure that I'm seeing at least abstracts of key information. So I've subscribed to a, a, a publication called Journal Watch, which looks over 250 scientific and medical journals and presents you with an abstract of information, um, research findings and insightful commentary to help you to make sure you're up to date with the information. And then for some of the uh, journals, you can actually get access to the, the full um, uh, online uh, journal article as well too. So that's very helpful. I also mm -hmm. subscribe to the ACP Journal Club. There's also a, a Pharmacotherapy News Network or PNN, which is an ACCP uh, publication. Mm -hmm. uh, Pharmacist Letter is another thing. All these are very general, right? They're all very general, but I can, if I identify something that is key, um, a key topic to my patients, I can get it more focused, more targeted to dig deeper into it. That's where I might then, once I identify the more general topic and say, I need more information on this to treat this patient optimally, I may actually then go to the primary literature, do a literature search, go to the primary literature and pull more articles. But it's this general mm -hmm. feed of information that's given me what I need to know and what's relevant to my practice and to my patients. That's really helpful. And we can put that process in the show notes for those of you who are listening in so you can kind of see what that looks like. Um, I know for me, Randy, when I when I got out of my residency, one of the hardest things was then, you know, you're kind of turned off access to um, the primary literature through through the residency and, and the College of Pharmacy you're associated with. So I think that was a really nice breakdown of how you can stay connected to the literature, um, you know, without necessarily having to subscribe uh, to each yeah. one. So that was helpful. Yeah. And Suzanne, another thing I'll add too is that there's other email listservs that you can actually sign up for that are free. That includes the mm -hmm. FDA drug information updates, um, Centers for Disease Control updates, Medline Plus. There's email alerts mm -hmm. you can sign up for. Again, are free of charge, uh, such as MedWatch and Medline Plus. There's a lot of information out there, and it's important for pharmacists and community-based pharmacists in particular because you're seeing such a wide variety of different types of patients, different types of conditions, to at least be aware of the current treatments that are out there and how do I actually monitor this patient appropriately. It doesn't always require you to sit down and read a, a full therapeutic book or have expertise knowledge of a certain therapeutic area, but you should have mm -hmm. enough knowledge that you're making a good informed decision and recommendation uh, for that patient who may be experiencing a medication-related problem. That is a, a primary professional responsibility that you have. So it's not necessarily that you have to be the expert, but you do need to be an informed uh, healthcare provider. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that makes a, a kind of brings it back to our initial conversation. Um, okay. Well, you know, Randy, one of the things that I wanted to mention, um, you know, we have available at the Impact a couple of tools that really help people stay up to date clinically. Um, and so anybody who's a subscriber with us has access to our monthly journal club, which is great. You know, we have 12 different faculty from around the country who on um, the second Wednesday of each month 
meet and really digest um, a current literature article um, and do that through a presentation as well as open um, questions. So that's a really good opportunity uh, to dig in and, and, and participate in a journal club each month through CD Impact. And um, I know having me on the show today to talk with you, what we wanted to mention was um, for those of you who listen to podcasts, and hopefully if you're listening to this podcast, you can subscribe to, to other podcasts, uh, that CD Impact just launched um, a Game Changers podcast, which comes out every Friday with Dr. Jeff Wall from Drake University. And um, really, he picks a, a current clinical topic and spends, you know, 20 minutes, 20 to 25 minutes um, kind of digging through that. And it, it's something that's come out in the last month that's um, pertinent to all all practices um, of pharmacy and just really allows you to subscribe to that on however you listen to podcasts and get not only your clinical updates, but get 30 minutes of continuing education. Um, so Randy, we're going to um, go ahead and play that so people can actually listen in to one of those clinical updates and hear what that sounds like. Um, and then we'll come back and we can kind of wrap up. That sounds great, Suzanne. Well, hello and welcome to the podcast. Uh, my name is Jeff Wall, and uh, hopefully you're listening to this through CE Impact. And uh, this is our third week of a weekly podcast trying to kind of detail some big issues that affect pharmacists and hopefully give you some good information and also uh, give you a little CE if you uh, sign up with us uh, for CE Impact along the way. So you kind of get a hopefully a quick dose of, of good learning and, and some CE to show that you did some work as well, which is always really nice. What we'd like to talk about today, um, you Know, in an effort to not make this COVID 24-7, um, I decided to talk about the other big epidemic that was uh, in full force in the United States for several years before uh, the COVID pandemic hit, and that, of course, is, is uh, the opioid epidemic. And um, um, I'm sure many of us have, have, have kind of let, let that some of that kind of slide to the back of, of, our, uh, of our brains as we're trying to deal with everything associated with the pandemic. But those people didn't disappear, right? I mean, those, you know, the people with opioid use disorder are still here. They're still with us. They still need our help. And um, I think pharmacists can be in a big role, can play a big role, I think, in, in, in helping these patients. And um, I think can also help prescribers and, and other people to kind of understand that that in the last 10 years or so, we've really started to up our game as far as, as the pharmacologic management of opioid use disorder. So we're going to talk, uh, you know, just very briefly about, about, you know, again, not forgetting the opioid use disorder or the opioid crisis is still with us. It didn't disappear with with the COVID crisis, and I think that uh, that we we can't forget these patients as, as 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 we're as we're dealing with everything else we're dealing with in our lives. We know that that six um, percent of patients who are prescribed opioids continue to use them at one year. We know that if you uh, continue to get opioid prescriptions, it does increase your risk um, for opioid use disorder. And again, not trying to 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 be judgmental, there are people who definitely suffer from chronic pain for. A variety of, of issues, but we know now that that especially for things such as low back pain and other kind of chronic non-malignant pain, that opioids aren't all that effective, right? That paper came out a couple years ago in JAMA that looked at at uh, ibuprofen versus uh, um, oxycodone and 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 uh, Flexeril, and basically found that that uh, um, oxycodone was less effective than ibuprofen was, and actually had more side effects. So we know that 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 the the role of opioids in chronic non-malignant pain is probably less than we thought even 
five or 10 years ago, but that doesn't stop the fact that there's plenty of patients in the United States who are taking, taking these medications for pain, and then they've developed a, a, uh, a concomitant opioid use disorder on top of it. And you know, if I think every community pharmacist has, has stories of, of, of the patients with opioid use disorder they deal with. It is important to remember that you know, these people do have, have a, a disease, and, and we need to, 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 to be aggressive about treating it. And studies have really shown that, that we don't do that. Studies have really shown that, that, that um, opioid use disorder patients, um, most of them don't get the help they need. Less than 20% of patients um, uh, who have opioid use disorder are seeking either psychologic treatment or pharmacologic treatment for it. And that's that, that number really needs to, to change. And I think while pharmacists um, can't prescribe some of this stuff, and, and that's probably not what we want to want to be getting into, I think we can educate patients. I think, I think we can educate prescribers that, that there are some very effective treatments uh, for opioid use disorder. And we can also obviously help uh, other prescribers with things like the, you know, uh, making sure that we don't pass the ceiling of 90 milligrams of morphine equivalents a day, because we know uh, from studies in, uh, in the last five or six years that that increases the risk of, of death from opioids significantly. Uh, if you're listening to me and you're practicing in Iowa, you know that uh, we have a, a, a statewide order from our public health department for, for naloxone dispensing. And again, the data is very clear that inpatients taking chronic uh, opioids that that concomitant dispensing of naloxone actually saves lives, and 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 there's really good data from the east east coast on that. And so again, if pharmacists can can be in a role to at least advocate for the concomitant prescription of naloxone in patients taking chronic opioids, that's a good thing. But if you're in a place where you can get the training and do it yourself, you may be saving a life. So you know those are all really important issues. What I want to focus on today, though, is 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 you know the pharmacologic treatment of opioid use disorder, which when I came out of school was really methadone. And that was it. And and I'll be honest with you, I hate methadone. I, I, I don't like the drug. Um, it's I know, I'm always nervous of a medication whose pharmacokinetics change the longer you're on the medication, right? And the higher the dose, the pharmacokinetics change, which then obviously makes the dosing of the drug extremely tricky. Um, I've seen plenty of people, uh, you know, have have inadvertent overdoses over the years from 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 methadone use. Uh, plus, it has the added problem of being one of the few opioids that prolongs the QT interval. So <clears throat> there's always issues associated with that and, and patients on other QT prolonging drugs. From an opioid use disorder perspective, patients didn't like it all that much because you, it required daily attendance at, at an opioid use disorder clinic to get your daily dose of methadone. And obviously, if you have a job or you're trying to get a job or anything along those lines, that's just going to be very, very tricky to do. And so really, when buprenorphine was uh, 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 introduced in the United States in 2002, um, it really you know had the potential to... To, to really change the game as far as how we did this. And more and more data is starting to accumulate, uh, showing the fact that, that, that buprenorphine is actually a very good drug for opioid use disorder. And it's something I think we can really advocate for. Now, up until recently, the big problem with buprenorphine was that um, it, it was only available first as an injection and then uh, you know pills and stuff like that. And then remember in 2010, they came up with a sublingual film formulation, which made it much easier to use for clinical use and was an alternative to the tablet formulation and stuff like that. Um, but the big problem with that and the and the and the tablets was they were super duper pricey. They were really, really expensive. And the prices really dropped in the last 10 years or so because of, of generic uh, development. And so now we're at a point, I think, where buprenorphine is is a is a good drug and is relatively affordable by most patients who have opioid use disorder. So um, 
you know, the, so that, that I think, you know, took a big barrier out of the use of, of buprenorphine for patients with opioid use disorder. Now, of course, we still have some barriers. One of the, probably the biggest ones was that up until 2000, um, um, it, buprenorphine uh, um, or methadone, excuse me, uh, could only be dispensed uh, for opioid use disorder by by physicians who had an had an ex DEA license, right? They had an, they had an, an ex license, uh, uh, which required special training and, of course, the extra money. And most physicians just weren't interested in doing that, and I don't really blame them. Um, in 2000, as we all know, the the, the Drug Addiction Treatment Act um, had allowed uh, for some training and some fairly simple training, actually, of a, a few hours training. Uh, and taking some tests, and you could get a waiver for the for the DEA, uh, DEA X number, and it's called an X waiver, and uh, um, that allowed uh, kind of a, any physician or any prescriber who wanted to use this to try uh, uh, um, uh, opioid use disorder and buprenorphine for 30 patients, and and if after a year that went pretty well, they could apply to to treat 100 patients, and if that went really well, they could apply to treat uh, a maximum of 275 patients. So I think there was kind of an effort to make things easier easier for, for prescribers to, who wanted to use buprenorphine. And um, um, th that's still a big barrier because even in my large health system, we only have one physician out of all my internists and family medicine doctors who has, has signed up for the X waiver. And so, uh, again, I think, I think pharmacists can definitely um, – uh, uh, advocate for that the, for the fact that this is a real need in in many communities, and that it you know uh, by the very by the very setup of of how this is, physicians or, or prescribers are not going to get overwhelmed that first year. I mean, they can only treat a maximum of thirty patients, and so uh, you know that's that will definitely be more work for the average physician office, but certainly nothing that's going to be overwhelming to them. And they can really kind of dip their toe in the water with that as well, and say you know, gee, is this something I really want to do, or is it I you know I this is just too much of a hassle for my my my, uh, my practice. I don't want to deal with it. I, you know, I think that 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 most physicians are just kind of unaware of the fact they think, well, no, I don't want to have to get an X license for 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 uh, the the D, you know, for to get a DAX license. I don't want to go through all that. I want to pay the extra money. It's just not worth my time. Um, there is a path through, I think, that allows prescribers to do this. Um, <clears throat> So then, you know, the question comes up, I think, you know, you know, why would you want to pick buprenorphine over uh, a methadone? And I think the, 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 the nice part of buprenorphine and the studies, I think, are, are really pretty clear on this is that it, it actually uh, dr <clears throat> dramatically uh, decreases uh, cravings uh, and and with and, and withdrawal in patients who are, who are, have opioid use disorder. Um, it actually can substitute in many cases for the pain medication somebody with chronic non-malignant pain has. So, I mean, uh, like methadone, uh, you can use buprenorphine as 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 a as a uh, pain treatment as well, right? Um, it actually is FDA approved as a pain treatment is the Butrans patch, and and the patch isn't approved for. Um, um, uh, uh, opioid use disorder, but it obviously just like methadone shows that you could you can use buprenorphine for a patient with chronic non-malignant pain and use that not only for their uh, not only for their uh, opioid use disorder but for their pain as well. It's an agonist antagonist, so for the pharmacists you know listening and having to think back to to, to pharmacology, um, um, I had a many many years ago in my in my undergraduate uh, training in, at, at Utah we had, a, we had a pharmacologist who would always talk about opioid partial agonist he had a big bad uh, big Boston accent so it was like today we're going to talk about partial agonist so buprenorphine is a partial agonist for for uh, for opioids as we know and because of that <clears throat> it has a ceiling 
And so um, higher doses of buprenorphine beyond a certain point don't won't increase the risk of respiratory depression or CNS depression. And so that's a huge safety feature of of, uh, of buprenorphine compared to methadone or really anything else. And so um, one of the really, really nice things is that it effectively treats pain at the lower to medium doses. But if someone were to take a whole bunch or someone uh, someone were to, to, you know, say, well, doc, I want to keep going, you know, they have a, a whole bunch of pills lying around. If they take a whole bunch of them, they're not going to get an increased risk of respiratory or CNS depression. It actually, because of that ceiling, blunts that because of its partial agonism. Um, the other nice thing is because um, it has, because of this partial agonist uh, effect, it actually has some antagonist effect on certain opioid receptors. And because of that, it allows uh, another safety feature, which is if someone were to take other illicit opioids, let's say you had somebody who is taking uh, the, the sublingual um a sublingual uh, uh, um, uh, uh, dosage form, and they, you know, decide to take a whole bunch of oxycotton or something along those lines. Because of that blockade at high, at higher doses, they're going to have much less of an effect of of extraneous opioids. So you've got the the benefit of not only you know having a ceiling effect of the drug itself, but also the the uh, the um, a fact that if they take other illicit opioids, they're less likely to get into trouble for it. So, um, you know, so for you know it. It's got several pharmacologic features that makes it a pretty nice drug for patients with opioid use disorder and especially patients who are taking uh, opioids for chronic pain and then developing an opioid use disorder on top of it. Now, of course, it's not a perfectly safe medication. It is an opioid. You still can get into get, get into trouble with CNS depression and respiratory depression. I mean, if you were taking an entire bottle of it, you, it, you would still have those problems. Um, it, it has... Um, you know, constipation is a side effect. It has, you know, all the other side effects that you, that you would associate with opioids. But um, because of this 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 blockade, it seems to work pretty good. Uh, as far it seems to be pretty safe as as far as as far as those things go. So, um, toxicity, uh, it, you know, again, as we've kind of discussed, there has been an increase in reports of toxicity, but that's probably just because we're using more buprenorphine than we have ever before. Um, you know, again, uh, we uh, as far as is a comparator to methadone, it's not even close. You know, I mean, methadone, as I said, is, is a pretty dangerous medication, in my opinion. And I think that, that you know, higher doses of methadone absolutely do uh, can increase the risk of respiratory depression. Um, and so I think it's, that, that's one of those things that when you compare the two, I think there's a lot of, of, of benefits to, to, to buprenorphine that you just don't uh, have with methadone. <clears throat> so we've got, you know, uh, um, We've got a medication now that that has been shown pretty conclusively to 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 help with opioid use disorder. We know it to be safer than methadone. In fact, it's safe enough again that patients can actually get a prescription for it and they can actually take it home and and and, and self-administer it. Unlike methadone, um, this does not mitigate uh, some of the some of the things we still have to do with these patients. We still have to make sure that we're not giving them a lot of you know sedative hypnotics. So I mean you know buprenorphine, uh, you know just because it it may be considered a safer drug compared to some of the other opioids doesn't mean if you take a whole bunch of Valium with it, you're not going to get into trouble. So that's something you got to watch out for. Um, uh, we do have to, it, it, there, it is still a controlled substance, so it has all the issues associated with, 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 with controlled substances, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and again, some, some of the rules associated with it, uh, you know, 
there are still some barriers to its use. It doesn't give you any, of course, any of the psychological tools that these patients are going to need. So you can't just open up shop tomorrow and say, hey, I'm going to get my X waiver and put the next 30 patients I have with opioid use disorder on this medication and see what happens. You do have to develop a program. And this program is going to mean, you know, these people seeking counseling, if they have other issues with depression, anxiety, those things need to be treated. Um, uh, if there are other ways to treat their pain that are non-pharmacologic, we have to look at that as well. And you would still have all kind of the, the legal requirements you would have with any sort of opioid use disorder as far as them signing contracts, uh, getting random urine drug screens to make sure that, 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 they're, that they're not taking other illicit medications. So it is important to note that most standard uh, urine drug screens will not show up. Uh, buprenorphine will not show up in most standard urine drug screens because that's just not a, not a standard opioid that's going to show up in, 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 the one, in the standard urine drug screens you'd have to get. So you'd have to have order specially either plasma level or a special urinary screen for it. So keep that in mind. Um, so, you know, I, I, I guess my bottom line is, 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 that, is that, you know, how can pharmacists help? So I've given kind of telling you all this data about buprenorphine. Hopefully this isn't new to you. Hopefully you've known about buprenorphine and realized that it's got, it's a, a pretty good medication. Um, you know, we have this huge gap in this country where <clears throat> despite barriers, we've got a whole population of patients who would probably benefit from buprenorphine. How do we, how do we get to them on that? And, uh, you know, since pharmacists, again, in most states are not going to have the prescriptive authority to do that. Um, uh, I think it's certainly for, for those of you who are, uh, who have good relationships with your state board of pharmacy, maybe thinking and having collaborative practice agreements, maybe thinking about uh, starting a collaborative practice agreement with a physician and, and seeing if, if your board of pharmacy would agree to some sort of pilot project where you would help them start a, a opioid use disorder order clinic. That's probably not going to happen in, in, in most states, though. So I think what, what community pharmacists and hospital pharmacists can do is, is when you see somebody coming in and you note that they you know, are on high doses of, of, of you know, oxycodone or, or Vicodin or whatever they're on, and you're, you're pretty sure they have an opioid use disorder, you know, it is reasonable to, to, to you know, even administer, and there are several very quick tests, you know, the three, four question tests just to see, you know, do they have an opioid use disorder? If so, you know, you know, if, you know not being judgmental, but offering help and saying, look, you know, there are uh, programs out there. Um, they're sometimes not easy to get into because there's a lot of people trying to get into them, but there are programs which that will help you give you the psychological tools to help with opioid use disorder. And we do have medications that will effectively treat your pain. And that's an important piece to tell them. It will effectively treat their pain and that, and, and but will also protect them from, from, uh, 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 uh overdoses and, and some of the issues associated with overdoses, and you're able to back off on that over time, and people still get pretty good pain relief, and and uh, it, it, it helps treat their opioid use disorder. So, you know, again, you know, buprenorphine is not a new drug. It's been around for a long time, but but we, we, we know it works. We know it's much safer than methadone. We know that that it, it can be a, a valuable tool in, in, this, in this epidemic that we're fighting. Would that we had as valuable a tool in the COVID crisis to treat COVID as we do with buprenorphine and, 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 and the opioid crisis. And so I think pharmacists at, at a minimum can, can work with their prescribers, see if there's someone in their, in their town or city who has an X waiver, would be interested in getting one, getting them the information to do that, and then you know screening patients and helping, helping get them the help they need. 
need because this is an epidemic that is not going to go away even if we came up uh, tomorrow with a, with a vaccine for COVID, which which we would, but we're probably not going to. Uh, this this was not abating. This this the the opioid uh, crisis was leveling off just because of of decrease in prescribing, but it was still a real big issue. And, and I think that's something we have, really have to come to terms with as a profession in these patients. So uh, so that's kind of today's thing. Um, a quick reminder uh, that uh, CEI Impact has great programming, uh, great CE programs a lot of options for you to choose from. And so, you know, check out their website. Uh, this is part of that, obviously, but there's a lot of other great, great programming that's uh, CE eligible that you can get. So not only get your CE taken care of, but I think get some really good information that is going to directly impact your practice. So to wrap up, um, I hope this uh, this uh, detour from COVID to the other big uh, epidemic we're dealing with uh, wasn't too depressing. But I, I think you know this is something that that it, it's a medication uh, that uh, buprenorphine is a medication that we've used for a long time. It's been around for a long time. Yet, like naltrexone for um, uh, uh, ethanol cravings, it's a drug that has really fallen under the radar of most uh, prescribers. And I think pharmacists uh, can help both prescribers and patients become aware of this very valuable treatment um, uh, for, for, for opioid use disorder. That's it for me this week. Uh, next week, we'll talk about something new. I'm sure we will. So hope you have a good week. Remember that uh, um, time flies. We don't know where it's going, but remember that the most important day is today. Take care. Suzanne, that's great information. And, and before we heard all this great information, just listening to you uh, talk about some of the tools that have been created at CE Impact, you know, really got me excited, you know, because I have been a customer uh, who mm -hmm. has access to the Q Friday, has done the Journal Club. You know, this gives me real information at a real time and at real access to good information. And I'm excited about the new product that you have. Um, I've listened to Jeff many times. You know, he's done game changers at conferences. This is good information mm -hmm. that's up to date and it's going to make you uh, very knowledgeable and up to date with the information. So all these tools are just going to make you a better practitioner overall. So I'm excited about working with you and, and still be able to access this great information. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Well, thanks so much, Randy, for talking with us today. Um, you know, I think there were, you, you really outlined your process for how to stay up to date um, through RSS feeds and, you know, Journal Watch and some of the different abstracts that you're able to review. Um, we talked about, you know, that four-step process of when you're looking at uh, prescriptions within workflow, you're looking for safety, efficacy, therapeutic outcomes, and affordability. And then, you know, to all the listeners out there, hopefully you got um, kind of a sampling for a quick way to stay up to date on the go, whether that's with your morning walk or, you know, hopefully our, our morning commutes all come back here soon um, and you're able to really spend that time um, staying up to date clinically. So thanks so much, Randy, and uh, we'll be back next week with more. All right. Thank you. The Thrive Subscribe podcast is brought to you by Thrive Pharmacy Transformations. Visit us online at tptransformations.com, where you can join our free community to inspire you, challenge you, and transform your pharmacy practice.